eight years ago, we were just beginning this conversation about merging two churches, a young church plant that I pastored, and then an older established church that met in this building. And I had been warned by many of my mentors not to do this. And generally speaking, I listened to my mentors. But I had been really convinced by God's word that we should do this. The big hang-up and the big warning from people is that while God's word may lead you to this ideal that you should do something, it doesn't always work because people aren't always willing to humble themselves to do what God's word calls us to do. And we're all guilty of that, right? It's not an older generation church versus a younger generation church. It's just that as people, we tend to be stubborn and humility is a struggle for all of us. And so my godly wise mentors encouraged not to do it and I kept pressing into the word and, and asking God, what do you want from us? And I was convinced, he said, you should do this, you should do this. And, but, but in wisdom, I took the advice from my mentors and we, we asked some hard questions and we had some hard conversations because even though the word of God says we should do it, the, the reaction of the people will determine whether or not we could do it. And so as we had these conversations, there's a phrase I had come from a church where I was a little bit frustrated because there, it seemed sometimes like the leaders of the church uh, valued their opinion, their perspective, and their preferences a little bit too much and, and thought that like, the church had to lean into their opinions, perspectives in order to, to grow and make a difference. And so I was frustrated with that. And so I was considering whether or not Park Free, the church that we were considering merging with, was willing to give up their perspectives, opinions, and, and kind of some of their tradition in order to change and to, to reach the next generation. And, and two phrases, really, which stood out to me. One was that an interim pastor said, it's time to change your diet to this church. And this church embraced it. They got it. And then another, one of our leaders, Jim Blomberg, said often to me and to anyone else who had, who had stick-ups and hanging points, he said, it's not about you. It's not about you. Remember that, Jim? Love that phrase. Jim would say, it's not about you. There were many other indications that, that the soil was ripe and that we should merge these two churches, but that phrase that Jim made, it's not about you, was a good reminder for me that it's not about me. It's not about a young pastor with new ideas and fresh ideas and young people coming in to revitalize an old church. Nor is it about the perspective and the opinions and the traditions of the old congregation, which sometimes pushes out the younger generation. Jim just so consistently and lovingly said, it's not about you. It's not about your style of ministry. It's not about your opinions. It's not about your perspectives. It's not about your preference of music or building. And that's exactly what our text today is getting at. It's not about you. It's not about me. John here records John the Baptist saying, he, Jesus, must increase. I must decrease. It's the point of this text. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's more about Jesus and less about us. And so we're going to walk through this text today and look at a few realities in this text that help us to learn that it's not about us, but it is, in fact, about Jesus. The first section that I want to look at here is verses 22 through 25, which talk about baptism and purification. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And if you remember the, the passage before it, we looked at it last week, it has the, the passage about being born again. It's Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night, and Jesus tells Nicodemus what it means to be born again, to receive new life. And then that famous verse, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. We looked at that last week. And moving from that interaction with Nicodemus, 
John records that Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and this is Jesus' ministry. He goes from town to town. He spends time out in the wilderness. He spends time with God. He spends time with his small group of disciples. He spends time teaching and preaching to crowds and healing diseases. And here he's just moving from one scene to the other. It says, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. So Jesus and his disciples here are in the countryside and they're, they're baptizing people, immersing people in water. John also was baptizing. Remember, John the Baptist. He had a ministry of baptism that came before Jesus' ministry of baptism. We talked about John the Baptist earlier as he was mentioned earlier on in the book and here he's brought up again. So Jesus is baptizing people while Jesus' disciples are baptizing people. If you look at chapter four, verse two, Jump down there real quick. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples. So Jesus' disciples are baptizing people on Jesus' behalf. Jesus' followers. He's got this growing group of followers who are being baptized. And then John had a group of followers who were being baptized. But now they're leaving John and they're going to Jesus which is the key of this text, and people are getting jealous about that movement. John's followers, those who are still with John, are confused about people leaving John and transferring their allegiance and their following to Jesus. But before we get to that, we have to understand a little bit about what's happening here with baptism and purification. It says, so John also was baptizing because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison, and later on, John will get thrown into prison, and he will actually be executed says, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. That word discussion in the ESV, other translations may say a debate. The, the Greek word here, it, it's more of a debate. It's more of kind of a conflict. They're, 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 they're arguing over what they think about purification and baptism and following John versus following Jesus. People are leaving John to now follow Jesus. And, and you can just imagine, this is what we do in the church, Right? Like, why are people going to that church? They don't do it right. They don't practice baptism right, or, or, or we don't like the way that they do it. And you can imagine some of the people who had been baptized in John's baptism are now going over to Jesus and being baptized by Jesus' disciples. And you can imagine, like, well, you can't be baptized twice. If you've been around church for any length of time, you know these discussions. Discussions, debates, arguments, divisions. And this is happening here in the first century, the very first disciples. This is natural human reaction. They're, they're, for one, they're probably curious, trying to figure out, like, why are people leaving John and going over to Jesus, and, and what is baptism, and what is purification? And so there's these Old Testament systems of purification, having to do with leprosy and also just ritual purification rites and laws. And then baptism was something that they were practicing in the first century. And so what we need to know about this point here, baptism and purification, what I want to summarize this for you as, as is that John's baptism and purification rituals pointed to something that needed to be done. It was preparation for something yet to come. John is preparing the way for Jesus. That's what his baptism is about. Repent and be baptized in preparation for Jesus. But Jesus' baptism and purification rituals pointed to the one who has come. It is participation in something that he himself has done. That's the difference here. Jesus is taking this ministry. John is preparing the way. He's proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand in the person of Jesus. Prepare yourself. Prepare yourself. Get ready. 
purify yourself, go through the Old Testament law, but the movement of the scripture is Old Testament law, New Testament grace. It moves from law to grace. It moves from ritualistic purity to being purified in Jesus. There's this amazing transition, and John is the conduit making this transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And John's disciples are being baptized as preparation, pointing them for one yet to come, this Messiah, the one who will purify the people. Jesus, his disciples, are now baptizing his followers in the proclamation that this, this new era, the thing that you were waiting for, that time that you longed for, that thing that needed to be done for you is now being done for you in Jesus Christ. Remember, we talked about this a little bit last week, but in chapter 3, he talks about, uh, chapter 3, verse 5, earlier in the chapter, Jesus talks about those who are, are born of the water and the Spirit. New Testament baptism is a sign of what Jesus has done for us, that he was crucified on the cross, overcame sin and death in the grave, and then now we are identified with him. We receive the Holy Spirit. He has accomplished our purification. And so keep in mind, even this, these debates, right, about who is following John, who's following Jesus, when John says he must increase, I must decrease, that even applies to how we think about baptism and purification. Sometimes in the church, we actually increase ourselves by trying to purify ourselves. We think, I've got to be pure, I've got to be pure, I've got to be pure, I've got to do it better, I've got to read more, I've got to repent more, I've got to do more holy things. And the whole point of the gospel in the New Testament is that we can't purify ourselves. We need an outside person to come and grant us purity. And so when John the Baptist teaches that he must increase and I must decrease, it's not just about following, although it is a big part of this context, and we're going to get into that, but it even has to do with our works, with our merit, with our religious effort. In our desire for a good life, for a changed life, for a saved life, Here's how, you, here's how you get a good life, a changed life, a saved life. You decrease and Jesus increases. It's not more you, more you, more you, more effort, more effort, more effort, more purifying, more purifying, more purifying, more religious duties like baptism or replace baptism with whatever the spiritual duty might be. It's less us, more Jesus. And so, He's talking about baptism and purification in that realm. This is just what's happening here as they move through the scene. Now move to verses 26 through 30, and we'll talk more about what it means for Jesus to increase and for us to decrease. It says, And they came to John, and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. You feel the hint of jealousy? And there's probably mixed like, in this debate, in this discussion that they're having, there's, there's mixed motives because there always are when we get into debates and discussions. Some people are probably asking out of genuine curiosity. Like, people are going to Jesus, should they be? Others are asking out of, out of jealousy because it feels good to be a part of a growing movement, right? A growing church, a church, a growing tribe, something that has energy and life and momentum. And John the Baptist, up to this point, had energy and life and momentum. But now people are shifting to follow Jesus. Now there's energy and life and momentum behind Jesus, and John is starting to look like an old, antiquated, 
leader that people no longer want to follow. And so they're confused, should they be making this shift, but they're also jealous about people making this shift. Rabbi, they're calling John a teacher. The one who was with you across the Jordan, remember Jesus was over there, who you bore witness to. Remember, John's testimony was, here's the Son of God, behold the Son of God, behold the Son of God. That's what John the Baptist told us in chapter 1. As Jesus walked by, behold the Son, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's telling his followers to go and follow Jesus. But now that it's happening, there's, there's jealousy stirring up in the followers and confusion among the followers. Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the sent one, but I have, I have been sent before him. John continues to do what he has done throughout his whole ministry, point people to Jesus, point people to Jesus, point people to Jesus, not to him. That's a humble, good leader. He's not taking credit. He's not, he's not saying, stay with me, stay with me, stay with me. I'm the one preparing the way for Jesus. He's saying, go to Jesus, go to Jesus, go to Jesus. He gives them this imagery of a, of a bride and a bridegroom and a best man, really, in verse 29 through 30. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Throughout the scriptures, the church, the people of God, is referred to as, as the bride of Christ, Husbands, think about your, your, your rightful, jealous love for your bride, for your wife. That's what Jesus has for his church. He's for us. We've committed to him. He's committed to us. We are the bride of Christ. So John is using this imagery. He's saying the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. We are the bride. The friend of the bridegroom, the best man, right? One of the guys who stands up near the friend who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. Like, how absurd at a wedding ceremony, I've done like 27 weddings the past few years. Usually the couple stands right here, right? Husband, uh, groom, and bride, best man. How absurd if I moved this couple back here and the best man and I had a little chit-chat, right? Like, and I told you about how great the best man was. The only reason these two are getting married is because of this guy. He is amazing. He introduced them. He's hilarious. He's funny. He's strong. He's good-looking. And I ramble on about this guy, and I'm like, oh, now let's get to the vows. They're married. Done. And then we go to the reception, and it's all about the best man. And he gives the speech, and he takes an hour himself, making, him, making all about himself, right? Gives the, the best man speech, and it's all about how he introduced them, and how he's funny, and how he's good looking, and how he's awesome, and, and the groom should be thankful to him that, that, that he's married, right? And in fact, you're lucky that she didn't marry me instead of you, dude. I'd, I'm a much better catch. That, that's the imagery here that John is giving us. Like, how foolish for anyone who's about Jesus to make it about them, and we do this in various ways. John says, he must increase, I must decrease. It's not about John the Baptist, and he knows that. It's not about you. It's not about me. I feel this tension every Sunday when I stand up and preach. How do I make it about Jesus? How do I make it about Jesus? Because I'm saying more words than we are looking at Scripture. 
And so I pray that it's about Jesus. I pray that we're getting our eyes off of me and to Jesus. John the Baptist is a great example of humility for us, what it looks like for us to, to, to point to Jesus. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. More, it should be more about Jesus and less about us. It's less about our recognition and more about people recognizing Jesus. It's less about who is following us and more about who is following Jesus. And praise God in his goodness and grace, our church has been growing the last years. And that's a very great blessing from God, but it's also a place where pride can creep in and people start to think like, well, yeah, our church is doing something right. And sometimes a, a, a pastor or a podcaster or an author's ministry will grow and they'll have a great impact on your life. Praise God, thank God for that. But, but sometimes we tend to make it about the pastor or the author or the podcaster. I don't know how many people I've, I've had conversations with, and I'm so guilty of this myself as well, but like a theological question comes up or, or a, just a, a question about Christianity and the Bible and spirituality, and the first thought is, I gotta go hear what has to say about this. I gotta go listen to this video. I gotta go listen to this podcast. I gotta go read that book rather than saying, I've got the word of God and the Holy Spirit living in me. I should pause and seek Jesus. And and here's a reminder for all of you. Many of the authors, podcasters, and, and pastors that you listen to, they have egos, and it feels good when people who don't know you look to you for answers. It does. And I'm, I'm not saying that every pastor, author, podcaster out there, that you shouldn't listen to them, right? Just be careful in your own soul. Are, are, are they increasing in influence in your life above Jesus? And, and just be aware, be mindful that it's about Jesus, not about them. It's about your relationship with Jesus, not about them being a mediator between you and Jesus. Jesus is the mediator between you and God. It's less about arch church growth and more about universal church growth. This is what it means for, for Jesus to increase and for us to decrease. At the end of the day, we're not, we, don't, we don't care about numeric growth of our church. We care about kingdom growth in the capital C church around the world. So that means we send people out to start another church. If that means we send missionaries and money out, that means that we bleed people. Doesn't matter. Is the church of Jesus Christ growing globally? That's the point. So it means for Jesus to increase and for us to decrease. It's less about who we are or aren't and more about who Jesus is. It's less about our works and more about Jesus' works. It's less about our sacrifice and more about Jesus' sacrifice. This is a gospel way of thinking. Less about us, more about Jesus. Tim Keller, in his helpful book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, he quotes C.S. Lewis and expands this quote of C.S. Lewis a little bit. He says, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity makes a brilliant observation about gospel humility. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not be always telling us that they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. He goes on to say, gospel humility is not thinking, needing to think about myself. 
not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end of thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself, the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Isn't that a great perspective? Like pride is when we're self-focused, when we're thinking about self. John here models for us this beautiful picture of humility. Jesus must increase, we must decrease. Look at verse 30. I even love how he words this, and I I think it's intentional. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. So many of us would even flip that around and say, I must decrease, but he must increase. Like, John the Baptist is so Jesus-focused, it's all about, he must increase, he must increase, he must increase. He, He adds in, I must decrease. People ought to stop following me, and they ought to go follow Jesus but in our attempts for humility, and oftentimes a false humility, we're, we're beating ourselves up. Like, like uh, C.S. Lewis here says that a truly gospel humble person won't even be thinking about themselves. When they're complimented, they won't say like, oh, well, I, and I don't know how to respond to compliments. It's weird, right? But like, as like Minnesotans, like, oh, you know, God just working through me. Praise be, praise be, praise the Lord. I was talking with, uh, with, with Mike Gunderson, uh, one of our elders, about this, and he said in Brazil, like when you, he was a missionary in Brazil for many years, he said when you compliment people, they say, thank you so much. Yeah, God's always, God's always I've just always been like that, and I guess God's using it. He was like, I don't know. It, his perspective is the Brazilian way of responding to compliments is far more humble than the Minnesota way where we like, I, and I don't have an answer for that. I have no idea. But let's get our mind off of ourselves and onto Jesus, right? The freedom of self-forgetfulness. John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease. Is that the posture of your heart? That Jesus would increase and you must decrease. When you, when you use personality tests and wirings, is it about you and understanding you and making more of you? Or is it about understanding how to, how to have God take possession and control of your life and to use you, your, your gifts, your wirings, your habits, your, your weaknesses, your brokenness for his glory? That's the point of this passage as John calls us to decrease and Jesus to increase. Now he goes on in verse 31 through 35 to talk about authenticity and authority. This is all about how Jesus is the the authentic representation of God and he's also the authority over created life, all of life. It says, verse 31, he who comes from above, speaking specifically of Jesus, he eternally existed with God the Father, he created all things, he who comes from above is above all. He has authority. He's above and he, he has all authority. He who is of the earth brings, belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. This is why people struggle to understand if they should leave John the Baptist's ministry to follow Jesus. They're thinking earthly. We saw this in the Pharisees. They were thinking earthly. They who are from the earth think in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. He is authentic. Jesus is the authentic, real representation of the true God, Yahweh, who has existed for all of time. He is, Jesus is God's stamp and imprint on humanity. 
For he whom God sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus has the Spirit uninhibited, without measure. God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit are one, working together to make God real and tangible and experienced by us. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. See that reality of authority there? Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. All things are in his hand. Jesus is the one true authority for life. One of the main points of the book of John, John's point trying to get across to us is that Jesus is the authentic representation of God and Jesus is also the rightful authority and ruler of our life. He's the one who calls us to journey with him. He's the one who calls us to walk with him. He's the one who determines how life is best lived. That's a question that all people have to answer. We're all asking it, whether it's conscious or subconscious. What's the best way to live? How do I flourish? What does a flourishing life look like? And, and the world, non-believers, but then also believers who struggle with, with, with pride and control, we like to think that we know how life ought to be lived. We struggle to give up authority, to give up control. And, and in fact, some people will push back and, and say that we should be autonomous. We should be in control. We should be our own authority. There, there isn't some like moral standard telling us what to do. But that doesn't even make sense, right? If you drove here in a car this morning, you put gas where the gas goes, and you put oil where the oil goes, or you plug the car in where it gets plugged in, right? Maybe you've, you've updated to an electric car. You know what that shows us? That there's an authority to our car. There's a manufacturer Somebody who made a car, and in order for that car to function properly, the oil has to be changed, and oil goes into the oil tank, gas goes into that gas tank. You switch those two up, that car will break down and no longer work because there's an authority to your car. The, the, the manufacturer who made your car and designed your car, the way that the engine works, you have to abide by the way that the car was designed to work in order for the car to work. And if you don't, it, it dies. That's true for human beings. There is a designer. There is a God who created us to function a certain way and a flourishing life comes when we align ourselves with the one who is the authority over our life, the one who designed our life, the one who created our bodies, the one who created all things. This is how life works best. He tells us. He gives us the answer. Jesus has authority. That's what John is saying here. He who comes from above is above all. Verse 35, the father loves the son. Throughout the gospel of John, we're going to see this deep intimacy between God the father and Jesus the son. And then this intimacy turns from Jesus to us and he invites us into that intimate union that God himself and Jesus the son have with each other. And he invites us, created beings, into that intimacy so he says, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Jesus is the authentic representation of God. He's also the authority. And then this leads us to a really big point which John makes in verse 36. And this is John the apostle writing this in verse 36, and it's all about life and death. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 
Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Some of your translations may say, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life. These are different words. So the word for belief at the beginning, whoever believes, that, that word believes right there is pistis, trust, faith, belief. But the word for obey is different. It actually means disobedience, do, does not obey. If you have the ESV, those three words, it's one word that means disobedience or rebellion. And so the translations that translate it to believe again, I, I don't like that translation because it's actually a different word. So it's, it's either we believe in Jesus or we, or we disobey Jesus. So that's what's going on here. And he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is a really big and important verse. It deals with life and death. The question of of life and death. And then it has God's wrath in there as well. And so let me just quickly summarize this for you. Eternal life is the result of belief in and obedience to Jesus. That's simply what John is saying. Eternal life is the result of belief, trust, faith, belief in Jesus, and obedience to him. Remember, we've said that, that, that belief, it's more than just a mental ascent. It's, it's a life change. It's, it's a trust that changes how we live. Death, or the lack of life, as it says, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. That's death. It's a lack of eternal life. Death is just the result of st- a steady rejection of and rebellion towards Jesus. And I say a steady rejection of and rebellion because there's always hope. There's always hope. If you've lived your life in rejection of Jesus, if you're rejecting his his will, his word, his ways right now, there's always forgiveness and grace. There's always an invitation back to the table to receive him. If you're rebelling, and sometimes even as Christians, we, we tend to rebel and reject certain things of Jesus. Like, if we're honest, there's things that he tells us that we're like, nah, I'm not going to let you have that area of my life yet. And so, steady, it's the steady, it's the settled rejection of and rebellion to him, saying, I do not want you in my life. You cannot have control or authority of my life. That leads to death. That is life apart from God. There is no eternal life. There is no abundant life that leads to death. And then wrath, some people get hung up on this word wrath. He says, but the wrath of God remains on him. And what I want you to know is that wrath simply is God's steady opposition to what destroys his creation. As a parent who loves a child, if you see someone harming your child, you're opposed to that action, correct? That's what God does. We choose things that, that, that destroy us, that harm us, that wreck us, and God is opposed to that. That's what wrath means. It's God's steady opposition to what creates distance between us and him and us and others. That's what wrath is. And God's wrath remains for those who don't receive Jesus and learn to walk in step with Jesus, who don't receive a new life. What we need to keep in mind as we read this last verse, verse 36, is that the difference between life and death is found in obedience that flows out of a relationship built on love and trust. So John says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Again, that belief is a holistic belief, mental ascent, but also life change, transformation over time, continuing day in and day out to trust in God. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, 
but the wrath of God remains on him. We need to keep in mind what obedience is. Obedience is this this response to God that flows out of a relationship built on love and trust. See, obedience without love and trust, it's robotic, it's legalistic, and it's lifeless. It's not salvific because God wants relationship with us and obedience that comes out of trust and love is relationship building. But obedience that comes out of just simple obedience sake does not build life. I can tell my kids to do something or, or, or you married people or, or unmarried, you think about your roommates or your relationship with your parents or anyone, a boss, like someone can tell you to do something or you can tell someone else to do something and they may obey, but if they be- obey with a begrudging and bitter heart, it does not help your relationship. It doesn't draw you closer together. In fact, it pushes you further from each other. That's not what God wants from you and I. He doesn't want begrudging obedience where we do what he's told us to do because he's told us to do it. That's not at all what God wants. God wants obedience out of a life built on his love for us, our trust in his love for us, and then we respond. My arrows didn't line up perfectly on this, but here's here's the progression of our relationship with God. Love. God's love for us. That's where it starts. The scriptures say we love because God first loved us. It all starts with God's love for us. And then from there, it moves to our our learning to trust him, our initial step of faith in trusting him, which is where new life comes from that we looked at last week, and then continual learning to trust him. And this, this trust and new life works together. And then out of that comes obedience. First, God loves us. Then we learn to trust him as we receive his new life. And then we grow in doing what he wants us to do, not begrudgingly, but joyfully out of relationship. Look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world, it starts with God's love, that he gave his only son. Love is an action. Love is a, is a self-sacrificial, others-facing action. Our obedience to God starts with his love, his initiation towards us, his moving towards us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes, whoever pistis, whoever trusts, whoever has faith in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's that second part of the progression, right? God's love, our belief, our faith, our trust, and our new life, which leads to then obedience as the chapter closed out. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The, ver- the flip of that is whoever obeys the Son sees life. Whoever trusts and obeys the Son has life. I want to close out this morning with a quote from David Benner in a book called to uh, surrender to love, which I highly recommend to any of you to read, especially as we go through the book of John to understand God's love for us. David Benner in the book Surrender to Love says this, those who love obey, but not all who obey love. It is quite easy to obey God for, for the wrong reasons. What God desires is submission of our heart and will, not simply compliance in our behavior. In fact, obedience that does not flow from the heart counts for very little in the eyes of God. Our motivations count because God wants our love and friendship, not just the right behavior. If he simply wanted compliance, he could have created a race of automatons. 
But desiring communion with beings enough like him to make intimacy possible, he created human beings. He created you, and he created me. And he invites us into this relationship of love and trust where we are transformed. We don't have to be our own authority. We don't have to make much of ourselves. We don't have to make much of our church. We don't have to make much of our religious duty or our moralism or our politicians or any of that. That can all decrease as Jesus himself increases in our life and we get lost in his love. And that's the point of the gospel and the reason why we come to the table every week at Park Community Church, to remember that God wants communion with us. And he sent Jesus, his one and only son, to live the perfect life that we're incapable of living, to die a sacrificial death in our place on our behalf, to overcome sin and death in the grave and to give us a new life. So I'm going to pray, and then when you feel led and ready, you can come up and visit the communion stations and be reminded of that gospel truth. Let me pray. God, I thank you that you want relationship with us. You do not want robotic, legalistic obedience. You want obedience that comes out of love and trust. And Lord, in that, you grant us new life. Lord, in this room this morning today are people who are bogged down by the weight of the old life and still living as though their old life controls them. Lord, I pray that you would set us free as we are reminded that in Jesus we have been given new life. We have nothing to lose and nothing to prove and we can freely come into your presence and commune with you. So I pray now even that we would do that and experience that together for your glory, our good. In the advancement of your gospel, we pray. Amen.